I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Stand by me. In all our lives, there's a fall from innocence. A time after which we are never the same. in the summer of 1959, a long time ago, but only if you measure it in terms of years. You guys want to go see a dead body? I bet you anything that if we find him, we'll get our pictures in the paper. Yeah, yeah, we can even be on TV. Sure! We'll be heroes! Yeah! Just suppose that I told the story. Do you think that anyone would have believed it? This is really a good time. The most blast. Welcome to the show for the first time from the Old Kids Movies podcast, who specialize in millennial nostalgia, AJ Beltis. Hi, everyone. And Trevor Howell. Hello. And this is a special two-show collaboration. Sharon and I are guesting on the Old Kids Movies this week. In fact, it was released yesterday. We talked about Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and it was great fun. So pop that in your download queue immediately. You also might want to get last week's episode. It's on the Iron Giant. Let's talk about uh, Stand By Me, which is a, a seminal film from the 80s. Kind of before your uh, your wheelhouse. So thank you very much. You guys suggested this, and thank you very much for that. I'm actually thrilled that we had the chance to do this because uh, Trevor and I talk a lot on our podcast about what ratings and what years we can go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really wanted to do Stand By Me because, as you had mentioned, this is a seminal film for the kids who grew up in the 80s. Mm. It's also rated R, so it's not technically a kid's movie and so when the opportunity to present itself came up i I knew i had to jump on it so thank you for having us on this one you're very welcome i'm glad we could uh, get on some people who are really enthusiastic about this one this one's been kind of knocking around in our heads for a while like we'll say should should we do stand by me like are we going to do a rob reiner season we've kind of done bits of rob reiner over the years Mm. and we'll talk about that in a second because we've covered several of them i feel like misery is upcoming But, you know, it's 2021, so... Okay, so... The novelette that this is based on, The Body, is one of several short stories in the 1982 Stephen King collection, uh, Different Seasons. 
Now, all four short stories were him taking a step back from horror for a moment to focus on drama. And the rest include Apt Pupil, which became a, I want to say, 1998 film with Brad Renfro and Ian McKellen. Uh, and that's about a kid who realizes that the old man down the street is a secret Nazi in hiding, and he ends up getting way into that. Uh, then there's the breathing method, and I had only I only read into this today, and I'm like, whoa, this probably shouldn't be adapted into a movie. It is about a mostly dead woman giving birth. But the fourth story, uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, sounds like it has potential to be quite a good movie, and I won't spoil the plot. The Body is set in Castle Rock in Maine, which was moved to Oregon for the film for the locations, which seems odd now because it's like, well, obviously, if it's Stephen King, you go straight to Maine. Mm. And the major differences from the film that we're going to talk about are as follows. So I'm only going to mention here the things that are in the short story as opposed to the things that aren't in the short story. It is set a year later, so rather than in uh, 1959, it's set in 1960. Uh, Gordy, as an adult, occasionally reflects on the other stories he's written and how they might relate in ways to his adult personal life, his losses and things that have happened in the interim 22 years. So it's a shorter span of time. Uh, and also the end, the bully gang members claim recovery of the body and beat the shit out of the kids. <laughs> Which, that's terrible. <laughs> and also, like, d in case that wasn't terrible enough, uh, the characters of Vern and Teddy also die in, respectively, a house fire and a car crash, in, again, in that interim 22 years. So Gordy is the single remaining survivor of this group of friends reflecting on it. And also, it, it added a note at the end, Ace... Ace became an alcoholic factory worker. And it's just kind of like Gordy went back home and he was like, yeah, fuck you, Ace. See, this is the <laughs> thing that gets me about different seasons is you say it's Stephen King taking a step back from horror for yeah, a moment. He didn't step back very far. The, 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 the <laughs> text read apt pupil? The text said that he stepped back and more, from horror more towards drama. And then I read the synopsis for the breathing method. Indeed. What they mean is there aren't any ghosts in this one. Yeah. No supernatural, but yeah. God damn, he gets some horrific, horrific shit. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so for context on Stephen King, this uh, set of short stories written in 1982, um, uh, he launched Carrie in 74, and that was his first major book, then Salem's Lot, then The Shining, then The Stand, then The Dead Zone, then Firestarter, then Cujo, and part one of The Dark Tower. That is a pretty amazing streak. And he was now, at this point, a superstar horror author, which is probably why he was like, right... No ghosts in this one. Although there's no ghosts in Cujo. No. It's just a mad dog. Yes, indeed. Um, after different seasons, however, he wrote uh, Christine, the one about the possessed car, Pet Cemetery, Cycle... What about the possessed cat? Cycle of the Werewolf. Is that Silver Bullet? Yes. Which had Corey Feldman in it again. Yes, it did. Uh, and uh, in 1986, he released It as a book, which feels like a vast expansion on the initial setup of a group of outcast friends in the 50s and their battles being looked back on by their adult selves in the 80s. So, yeah, that just, it feels like he, he sort of took Stand By Me and went, what if evil clown? Mm, yes. There's, there's a lot of other uh, commonalities there as well. And for context on Rob Reiner, uh, he directed This Is Spinal Tap, which we already covered in a riotous show several years ago. Uh, the Sure Thing, which I've never seen and I've just ordered on DVD. Editor's note, I had seen The Sure Thing. It's just not very good.
and in consequence I scrubbed it from my memory. John Cusack is a dickhead boy in college. He winds up going on a road trip with a prissy girl, played by Princess Vespa from Spaceballs, so that he can shag a girl who's easy and lives on the other coast. Obviously by the end he's going to realise there's better for him and it's right there, but it took way too long to start the road trip, and he didn't change much at all. If anything, the prissy girl, she changed for him. And here, for his third film, it really feels like like this was the work of a more confident director. Uh, He tackled Stephen King, and after that, he directed The Princess Bride, which we've covered, When Harry Met Sally, which I feel like we're going to cover, Misery, like I said, we are almost certainly going to cover that. If nothing else, it's a superb take on toxic fandoms. Also by Stephen King, that one, and A Few Good Men, which we have also covered. And that again, this is an amazing streak for the director, broken by North in 1994, which we covered on Patreon in our after-school club shows. So this and Misery put Rob Reiner in a small group of directors, along with Frank Darabont, Brian De Palma, Stanley Kubrick, Mike Flanagan, and Andy Muschietti, who really adapt Stephen King well for the big screen amidst a sea of awful adaptations, including Maximum Overdrive, directed by a deeply cocaine-addled Stephen King himself. So the framing device of this story, we're going to talk you through like each bit of the uh, of the film, um, and just kind of like uh, we assume and hope that most of you have seen Stand by Me, but statistically speaking, there are going to be a whole bunch of you who haven't. I, I honestly feel like if you listen to to our show, it's not going to ruin the film. In fact, I don't think the film can be ruined. It's it's great, and it is very much recommended. Mm. I, I was surprised, and I, I feel like I'm surprised every time when I, when I see it. You begin with uh, a Range Rover and uh, Richard Dreyfus as 39-year-old Gordy, who is played by Will Wheaton as a 12-year-old in this for most of the film, giving us the framing device. Um, now, he lets us know at the end of the movie, the, the real emotional punch at the beginning I, 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 I always forget that he reads in the paper that a man uh, named Chris Chambers was stabbed in a fight and then he tells us at the end. I feel like people forget that or miss that because it always comes as such a punch. Um, and his words are specifically, and this, this happened, the, the, the bulk of the film that he describes happened 27 years ago in 1959. It happened a long time ago, but only if you measure it in terms of years. So we then go to a treehouse and we meet four shitty kids. Uh, we've gone um, effectively behaving like most Stephen King kids do, which is swearing, smoking, kind of teasing each other to, to pieces and uh, also indulging in, in like racism and fat shaming and, and shaming kid, the kid who wears glasses, using the R word, talking about vomit quite a lot, uh, and also uh, impugning each other's mother's virtue. But um, at least two of them are very likable and engaging immediately. So... We've got Gordy, played by Will Wheaton. We've got Teddy, played by Corey Feldman. We've got Vern, played by Jerry O'Connell. And we've got Chris, played by River Phoenix. 
and I'm just going to give you this, folks, the setup, and then I can we can start sort of talking about each bit as we go through. The setup is that Vern, while he was underneath his house looking for a, a big jar of pennies that he'd buried there somewhere and forgotten exactly where it was, overhears two older boy bullies, part of this bully club run by Kiefer Sutherland as a guy named Ace, who one is... One of whom is Vern's brother. One of whom is Vern's brother, and also another of whom is Chris Chambers' brother. Um... Yes, but I can't. I don't think Chris Chambers' brother is in this particular conversation. Not in this conversation, but he is in this gang. Yeah, which the gang is, has seventy-eight members. There is a significant point that the gang is composed of uh, older brothers of two of them. Yeah, and yeah, like I said, there, there's loads and loads of members of this gang. They're 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 these like street hoods who really don't. They're they're up to no good wherever they are. Uh, But being a Stephen King story, they are psychotic bullies. Specifically, Ace is just this, like, you know, I will scar you for life. I might even kill you because I just have nothing else to do with my time. Every Stephen King small town seems to have at least one of these. And you, you kind of find yourself thinking... Why is he still around? Why has he not been removed a long time ago? To, I mean, to which end that makes this film one of his like most autobiographical because it just kind of plunks you there dead centre. It doesn't complicate things with anything supernatural. Mm. It's very much a, a tale of four kids together doing a thing and the horrible bullies that they have to evade yeah. at the beginning and end. I, I have a feeling, having read an awful lot of Stephen King through my teens, that most of his stuff is very autobiographical in the sense that they, these things may not have happened to him precisely, but he's working a lot of stuff out in yeah. his writing. The setup is that these bullies are talking about a young man named Ray Brower who was hit by a train um, several miles out of town. I think it's 20 miles out? Yeah. Uh, 20 miles out of town, and his body is by the railroad tracks, and they're talking about going and checking him out. And Vern brings that to the treehouse, tells all the other kids about it, and they decide as a kind of a quest to go and see this body. Well, the kid's been missing for a few days. He's the same age. I don't know whether he goes to their school, but he's the same age as, as Gordy, Teddy, Vern and Chris. Yeah. And oh. he... I thought it was an older boy. No, no, no. Out. He says yeah. he was our age. Right. But he's gone missing and it, they have... The town has been speculating that he got hit by a train, but because the body hasn't been found, right. they don't know. And these two boys, having stolen a car and gone joyriding around the outskirts of the town, have found the body and mm. are now feeling uh, somewhat in a moral quandary because if they tell the police that they found the body the police are going to re- realize that they stole this car right that's it yeah so they uh, the the only way they can find the body is to go back under different circumstances which exactly. they then do later in the uh, film exactly. okay so how is Gordy characterized uh, in comparison with the rest of the kids i mean he's narrating it as richard dreyfus and sort of looking back but he's different to the other 3 Well, something that I noticed relatively early on in this watch over other ones is when Richard Dreyfuss is introducing the other characters, he kind of pinpoints fatherhood as the almost like a characteristic and the influence of fatherhood on his friends. So he mentions relatively early on, Teddy Duchamp was one of the craziest guys that we hung out with, but he never had much of a chance in life because his father was given to fits of rage. And Mm. now he's in the, as he's described by Pressman later, the loony bin. And then you've got someone uh, like Chris, where everybody knows that Chris is going to turn out bad, including Chris, because he comes from a bad family. Mm. Whereas Gordy, in the other end, he's 
definitely dealing with stuff with his father. And we find out more about the role of his father towards the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Whereas at the beginning, we're starting to see his parents are tra- having trouble, as he says, putting the pieces back together after his brother was, was killed in a cheap accident. But Gordy's also dealing with that loss, too, because he has friends, but his brother was the person in his house who really, really cared about him and acted as that father figure towards him. And now he doesn't have that. I think there's an element with all of the kids as well that they they knit together as a group because they really need each other because of what's absent in all of their lives. They have... As you say, their their fathers are either not up to the task or something has happened that means that there's a distance between them. I don't think Vern's dad is ever mentioned, is he? Yeah, clearly Vern's dad is just perfectly normal because otherwise Vern would talk about it. Yeah, yeah. He is not a troubled kid. They only mention Vern's mom. Just very briefly, there's a scene where they're getting to go over the the junkyard fence and I think they see a a, a bashed-in uh, car and someone says, um, "Hey, Vern, looks like your mother was out driving again." Mm, right. Okay. So maybe Vern's father's uh, absent completely. Mm. Uh, but the yeah. other thing is as well that the that those of them who have older brothers, the older brothers are also not doing a role model type job for them. Mm. Gordy had a brother who was providing him with that role model until relatively recently. Denny, played by John Cusack. Yeah, but having been killed in this Jeep accident, there is now this massive gap in their family where Denny used to be. And Gordy's father has never been particularly interested in providing that role model for Gordy because they don't connect at all. Teddy's father is obviously no no role model to lean on and Chris doesn't seem to have any kind of family support. He's had to put everything together himself. Mm. So these four boys are... Without having... a positive male influence. Exactly. And so they are having to be that positive male influence for each other. The first thing we see them doing is clustered together in this treehouse, smoking cigarettes and playing cards, which I will almost guarantee you is in almost conscious imitation of their fathers. Mm. And the way that they show, aside from the physical intimacy that they show each other there's a lot of hugging a lot of sort of wrapping their arms around each other as a sense of friendship they they almost insult each other lovingly mm. and i thought that was i i noticed it this time basically the way that they were almost experiencing abuse from their their parents and and their older brothers that's how they showed affection towards each other was verbal not abuse in this case since it was it was lovingly and it was there's a sense of friendship with it, but it was. I noticed at this time that that's how they, how they hung out, and that's how they complimented each other was through these jokingly jabs at each other. Especially Vern, mm-hmm. who's almost the punching bag of the group. It's almost. You're, you, there's no almost about it in terms of the abuse. In several <laughs> of their cases, they I, uh, Teddy's been yeah. mutilated by his father, and the emotional abuse that Gordy goes through from his father's. It's not. It seems to come as a not so much what he says and what he doesn't say. So Gordy's got to live with these big eyes glaring at him. And later on has a dream where he uh, is at his brother's funeral and his father leans down and says it should have been you and wakes up crying. He's genuinely convinced that his father hates him. And and you're right. If you compare uh, how they... Um, bust each other's chops compared with the bullies, it's positively Edwardian in its politeness. Um, and and it's, uh, it's affection. Uh, you know, it, it's like, it, like I said, they're still shitty to each other, but in a kind of a the loser's club way. 
Um, and also, we, we asked our um, our kid what uh, other movie had a lead boy character whose brother has tragically died very very recently, and his mother and father are now emotionally absent. They went straight to it with Bill Denborough having lost Georgie, and it's it's it seems very deliberately re-evoked by uh, King in that, and like, this was a powerful thing. Let's let's use that in a lot larger context. Yeah, I think if there's a key difference between both of those setups, it's that a clown the... got him than the other case. Well, other than the clown, <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about the family dynamic. I know, I know. Um, but the uh, the Dembras, Bill seems to have had a pretty reasonable relationship with his parents before. Georgie's yeah. death. Yeah, it establishes in this that Gordy's dad was a com- colossal prick Absolutely. while Zenny was still alive. Absolutely. And there's there's a way that when we see the flashbacks where they're sat at the dinner table or where uh, Denny and Gordy are talking together, the, the idea of this family that you get is that their father feels himself to be some kind of small-town failure. Like, things haven't gone horrendously wrong for him, but you can tell there's a life he wanted that he didn't get. Mm. He's got two sons. One of them is the epitome of everything he wishes he could be. So he funnels all of his love, all of his promise, all of his hope into... Denny, who is the football star, who has a cute girlfriend, who's got everything apparently going for him. Whereas I know Gordy's strengths and they are few. He's yeah. Denethor. He's Denethor, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Gordy is poor Faramir sat there going, but I'm incredibly, like, gentle and artistic. Oh, and his Lord. dad's going, it really is that, that story. Has no value to Do me. Do you wish that I had died all. in Denny's place? Yeah. Yes, I wish that. Absolutely. And Denny is Boromir with the, the fact that he actually loves Faramir and is supportive of him. Leaves more room for drinking. Well, maybe not that. He's a bit more of a jock, but yeah, there is that that sweetness between them. This yeah. is why, by the way, that was a travesty uh, being left, leaving that thread out of the theatrical edition of the Two Towers. Mm. It's uh, like some people are like oh, I've never seen the extended versions. It's like oh my god. Yeah, but there oh, there no. is there is something <laughs> about Denny that uh, that Gordy leans on very very hard. Yeah. In terms of his uh, his identity and his reassurance that he is okay because he's not getting that feedback from anyone else, and it culminates in what happens towards the end of the film, which I will come back to later. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's talk about uh, all of you folks. Talk about Ace, the psychotic bully, and his million dude gang. <laughs> Yes. I'm just going to say this because it freaked me out. When I was writing my notes for this, um, I I misremembered. I know, you're pulling a face. But honestly, it really did freak me out. I was, I was Stephen writing, King's already written a book about it. Well, so it would appear. Um, but I was writing down the name of Kiefer Sutherland's character, which I had misremembered as Ace Merrick. It's actually Ace Merrill. And my autocorrect changed it to Merrill. I think... Autocorrect actually taps into Google now. Okay. Because that, it, it that might explain it. But there's names, other but... uses of Ace, surely. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, it anyway. corrected my my spelling of Andy Machete, so okay. I think we're all right. Right, fair enough. It's 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 not ghosts. <laughs> it weirded me out. Okay, okay. so Ace. sorry to our guests. I we have yacked too much. If you want to talk about these crazed bullies, please do. Well, something I noticed again this time is the differences in how each of the characters are based on their age and the generation, how they're interacting with each other, each other 
I mentioned the kids are are interacting. They're they're loving and they're they're very intimate with each other and mm. physically just together and friends. And even when they do fight, they make sure that they're okay with each other at the end. The adults they're very separated. The only yeah. adult scenes in this movie is the store clerk who's by himself, the junkyard who's yelling at the kids, and then the the parents, Gordy's parents, who are very very separate deliberately. And this teenage gang. They're just horrible to each other. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> they just yell and, at each other, threaten at each other. It's they're brought together by fear. And I'm guessing, be, you know, because they're 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 brothers with some of the younger kids who have this abuse in the house, it obviously followed them. And it's the cycle of abuse continuing with them. And it's tragic. And the first time I saw this movie, I hated them. But this time I almost felt empathy towards them. Mm. Not not completely, but there is a little bit of empathy I could feel towards them because I know with the context of what's going on in their houses, it's it it's sad. It's it's tragic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's cyclical, almost kind of like the Florida Project. But one other thing that I just to kind of mention about the novel or mm-hmm. the novella, I should say, is in the novella, the store clerk that sells Gordy buck and a half a hamburger is trying to rip him off. He's, he's actually a really bad guy in the novella. Oh, geez. Um, and I think Stephen King was going out of his way in the no- novella to see, maybe exaggerate how bad adults can be. Yeah. Um, but this was a conscious choice. I mean, he had like one good adult out there. Um, I don't necessarily know what Reiner was trying to do with that, but I think it's worth calling out that he made that switch from him being a jerk in the, in the, in the writing to an okay guy in the movie. One of the big themes of this, which again was expounded on in in it, uh, and I really felt trapped by this film while I was watching it this time. Not in a a terrible way, but I felt for the kids. It was what Rob Reiner said during the commentary about how he got River to act during the scene where he talks about stealing the milk money. Um, And that is, think about an adult who let you down. And I was, like, that's the key to the whole movie. The whole thing is about these kids beginning to realize that the adults who hold the keys to society will continuously let them down and how terrible and trapped you feel as a kid when you start to realize they don't have your back. Yeah. And in in Chris's case in particular, the fact that he says this was the first time I realized a teacher could behave like that. He's grown up in a shitty family. He's in the bad part of town. He knows what adults can be like. But school is supposed to be fair. School is supposed to be education and the way you get out of here. Mm. And that is giving him a, a sight of actually, no, that's just as bad as the rest of them. Yeah. And as tragic as it is that Chris has experienced that before the other kids, you know, obviously someone like Vern is still in a much more heightened state of innocence. Mm-hmm. Um, he knows with that knowledge he's doing good. So in the, in the scene where uh, Teddy and Vern are off doing lollipop lollipop on the train tracks and yeah. uh, Chris and Gordy get to take a second and hang back. Chris has to be that self-proclaimed parental model for Gordy and said, like, you're, you're not going to go into the stupid shop classes. You're going to you're going to be uh, a smart guy. You're going to go to the college courses. I know we're jumping ahead in the, the movie. That's a little right. bit, Jump around as much as you guys want. That's that's obviously important for for Chris, because he's you, obviously when you when you have those tragic upbringings happen, you can go one of two ways with it. You can continue the cycle or you can break it. And you see someone like Chris, who's, um, again, wonderfully portrayed by River Phoenix in this movie. But to have that um, maturity and to have that sense to turn that, 
that that badness that he sees in other people's lives and try to serve in, in some capacity as a friend and a role model to someone like Gordy and try to break him out of it. It's it's wonderful to see. And then you see Gordy pay that back at the end when he's able to convince Chris to go into the college courses and eventually be a lawyer. Yeah. One of the first things that happens while they're on the road is that Teddy plays chicken with a train. And uh, Rob Reiner is under the impression that, and I, I'm, I'm kind of with him, that unless Chris had jumped in there and yanked him off the tracks, uh, he actually would just have carried on standing in front of uh, this train shooting at it with a pretend machine gun i think the 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 tragedy of teddy is that he is confused about all of these things he's feeling he doesn't understand his own rage these boiling emotions in there he has no adults to help him contextualize this and the the stuff he's feeling is 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 really harmful and it because see clearly he never really had anyone to um, to, I suppose, give him perspective, from the sounds of it, his life is is hard and uh, he, he winds up kind of aimless and left outside society as, as the... Uh, it's almost like he's cursed by the um the by Milo Pressman the uh, the guy who owns the um, junkyard. He's tied to his uh, father as a lunatic that he will never be able to be more than that. Mm. I, I grew up loving the, the 1990 it miniseries, and something that always frustrated me, especially when I saw it younger than I probably should have, mm. is the relationship with, between Beverly and her father in that one. Because the first time you see Beverly and her father, um, he strikes him. He strikes Beverly when Beverly gets the poem from Ben. Yeah. And then later on, when they're all talking about what they want to be when they grow up, um, Beverly's like, oh, I might be a painter. My dad's teaching me how to draw. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense because mm-hmm. thankfully I came from a very fostering and, and good family life. And that I think is echoed in, in this movie as well, because you've got Teddy talking about, um, a lot of the frustration that he feels with his father, but not actually, I should say not talking about the frustration. He, whenever he talks about his father, it's always in a very positive light. He talks about going fishing with his dad. It's about, um, how proud he is of his dad, that he, he was a veteran. And it, it's almost like, you know, a domestic abuse situation where it, it, it is, he is trapped and that's, that's scary and sad to see. Again, it's not, there's no almost about it. There is <laughs> that one of the greatest tragedies of domestic abuse of children in particular is that all they know how to do is love and that needs to be twisted by someone mm-hmm. horrendous. They will, <clears throat> excuse me, they will continuously love an abusive parent despite this treatment. And that yeah. really comes through in, in Feldman's performance. He actually says that there weren't any other kids who were going to the audition who were as messed up as him uh, at an early age. Um, he's remarkably frank about how um, d- difficult his own life was. So there's a strange parallel between these characters. Oh, sorry, yeah. between the real life actor and this uh, tragic character. Yeah, they, they made a point to say that uh, Rob Reiner tried to hire kids who were essentially the exact same versions of their characters. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. There's, uh, uh, he, uh, Reiner specifically said in uh, the, the making of that there is a difference between, say, Jerry O'Connell came in and was basically Vern. And he was like, yeah, I can assume that that's how he's going to play it. But there's always that question mark regarding how natural 
and naturalistic he can be. And most child actors are simply fed their lines by the director, which is why they're never really in the moment. And that's why we've I've pointed out over the years, and this is not a casting aspersions on the child actors. They're a kid. They don't know what's going on. Uh, and that's the thing. The director's job in most cases is to make sure that they do know what's going on. And in some cases, uh, we've already covered The Shining, Stan Kubrick was really uncomfortable with the idea of the kid who played Danny actually knowing what was going on. So he kept it from him. He Mm -hmm. effectively fed him a sweeter version of what was happening and then just said, like, now, now look really scared. And there's a difference, a wild difference between that and someone like, and we always go back to this Rosetta Stone of child actors, Haley Joel Osment in uh, The Sixth Sense, the level of engagement that that as a young actor had with his character. And the fact that he was able to do that being directed by M. Night Shyamalan, who only tends to get performances that are weirdly alien out of his actors. This, like, kind of Zoe, Zoe Deschanel in a trance is your standard performance uh, from... Or, or, or Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix in uh, Science, just kind of staring off halfway into the middle distance, a little bit puzzled as to what's going on. The fact that Haley Joel Osment could just bring that fear and that energy and that plea for help into the sixth sense and sustain it is one of the main reasons why that film is to this day, and a massive winner. Hmm. Well, yeah. I think one of the... And Phoenix, most definitely, of the four of them, brings that oh, here. Oh, absolutely. But I do mm-hmm. think you, you're right about a, a huge chunk of the quality of the performances comes down to Reiner's ability to cast hmm. and his ability to then help these kids channel who they already were into the shape of the characters from the story. Hmm. So the one of the difficult things he said when you're working with children, this is uh, Rob Reiner in the commentary, is that you're you're working with somebody who doesn't have the experience, not through any fault of their own, they just haven't been around long enough to bring somebody that they're not into the performance that they're giving. So really you're just kind of helping them fit themselves into the character and a director has to be able to let go of their own vision of what this character should be mm. in order to do that. There's uh, two little notes that uh, we've we jumped over in the uh, the bully section early on. For a start, um, when Kiefer Sutherland's ace looks like he might burn Chris's eye out with a cigarette, he really sells that. Both of them do. Uh, and because it's a Stephen King story... You know that these horrible psychopathic bullies do that kind of thing and tend to either not suffer consequences or get locked up because society doesn't know what to do with them. I was uh, reading some stuff the, uh, the other day about this movie and apparently Keith Sutherland just has the nicest things to say in memory of um, River Phoenix and no. said that in that scene specifically, um, River didn't feel like he was holding the lit cigarette close enough to this 14-year-old kid's eyeball Jeez. and said – in the next take, get it closer to my eye. It needs to feel real. You need to make it feel like I'm super scared and I, I need to feel that. Wow. <sighs> we won't really ever know what that guy was capable of, but he showed us yeah. glimpses and he showed us amazing performances. Mm-hmm. That is a tragic loss, as was inevitable for me to say on this show. 
The baseball cap is a neat little touch because Denny gives it to Gordy early on in a flashback. And then one of the bullies just takes it off him and just kind of like wears it crookedly on his head and just doesn't... It's Ace. Ace takes it from Ace him takes and it from gives him. it to Ivor. Gives it, like, doesn't even care. And it's this is a precious, totemic heirloom of a baseball cap. And it's just, you know taken from him in a way that it's the reverse of a save the cat it's a kill the cat it's a we know we hate this guy a save the cat is where at the beginning of a uh, film or in a screenplay or a story or a, a anything where we're being introduced to characters the usually lead character does something nice that allows us to like him and it, or her and engage with them early on and kind of forgive the uh, their foibles uh, later on because it's like well they saved the cat this is a kill the cat moment where like I hate this bully and it just makes you grind your teeth. And he just steals it for the sake of stealing the hat. Because yep. you see, just because he hands it to his friend, he does not care about the value of having a hat. He's not using it to protect his eyes from the sun. He's stealing it just to be a dick. Yeah. The first time I watched this movie, again, when I was probably 12 or 13 years old, something that really angered my seventh grade self was mm. – Where's the hat? Why didn't you get the hat back at the end of the movie? And yeah. Rob Reiner has asked that question all the time and says, whenever they turn the corner, eyeball threw it into the nearest trash can. They don't care about this, which makes you just mm -hmm. loathe them even more. Yeah. Also, he gets something more valuable than the cat back. It would be a nice little symbolic gesture. But again, that suggests that the bullies would give a shit about it. Ultimately, throwing it in the river would make more sense, visually speaking. Uh, just to uh, annoy the audience even more. This scene as well is a, a really good visual example of how the older brothers are failing them as well. Because this, the, the guy who's given the cap and just stands there watching this whole thing play out, that's Chris's brother. Hmm. And he Eyeball. watches <laughs> Ace nearly burn his little brother with a cigarette and he does nothing. He laughs. Yeah. Chekhov's gun we also get here which is where Chris says hey I got it off my old man and then it's like oh god and then we do have kind of a tension and as soon as it gets bought out later in the movie like oh god don't give it to Vern oh god and it gets used to like scratch foreheads and it gets pointed directly at balls it's crazy <laughs> but it comes in incredibly useful at the end in terms of uh, it is a key moment uh, of this and a key prop. But, uh, yeah, yeah it, it's it's a neat way of saying they're kids, but what they're doing is extremely dangerous. So let's... Well, it's mm -hmm. presented in a way that, that repeatedly shows they don't know what they're doing because not only is it Chekhov's gun, it's Chekhov's loaded gun. Yeah. I hold Chris, ten man's lives in my hands. Chris gives it to Gordy. Gordy starts messing around with it. it. He fires it by mistake and freaks out. And Chris's response is, look, I'm really sorry i didn't know it was loaded you took a gun out and you didn't know it was loaded and why is the next thing you do not to remove the clip and take the rest of the bullets out yeah <laughs> this kind of sets the scene for when they then get to the railway bridge and it's like we can either walk five miles down that way and then walk five miles back or we can walk 10 minutes across this bridge and be there immediately and uh Honestly, as an adult, I was like, ah, I just walked the five miles and five back. <laughs> this is insane. This bridge is a death trap. 
It's a million miles above ran. the river. <laughs> I would have sprinted. I don't know why they walk so slowly. Oh. Well, this is the thing. They they go so slowly because Vern crawls. The the other two, Teddy and Chris, kind of streak out ahead, yeah. and they're almost yeah. at the other side when the moment comes. They go as slowly as the um, as the narrative required yeah. them to. But, but but it's because <laughs> Vern doesn't have the the confidence and the um, the maturity in the case of Chris and Gordy and stupidity in the case of Teddy to just get up and move. He's just above toddler status at this point. He's like, like he, he goes back to crawling real easy. Yeah. Um, but when the train comes, did you listen to the sound? There isn't the screeching of brakes. There's a honking of that a horn. That train driver does not care. That train driver's like, uh, are you running fast enough yet? Run a little faster. <laughs> I ain't put the brakes on. There's no point. And I know that there's like a mile stopping, but even as that, as a train driver, unless you're actually kind of keen on murdering kids with your locomotive, mm-hmm. that's something where you at least, oh, maybe I'll just start with the brakes. Yeah. Another example of how the adults suck in this movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but he expounded on that in uh, in it and turned it into this kind of subconscious conspiracy of the adults in Derry, um, which is just down the road from Castle Rock. If you're uh, if you're a Stephen King fan, uh, wherein mm-hmm. they're okay with children being sacrificed because it le- leads to the continued success of their town. Well, it's an extrapolation of. Here's a thing that you could do to make your kids' lives better and safer. Hmm. Eh, we'd still rather not. But it comes from a very sharp observation from a young Stephen King that is being channeled through an older Stephen King writing saying, this terrible thing happened right in front of my eyes and no adults did shit about it. Hmm. And it just feels like injustice. And there's something really significant about the fact that Chris goes on to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Specifically when he, uh, this is jumping ahead to to get to the meatiest part of the movie, when he tells Gordy about the milk money fiasco wherein he took the milk money and then the teacher took it from him and then somehow the milk money disappeared. Specifically that he gave it back, he felt guilty, so he returned it to the teacher, she kept it and let him take the fall. So in his mind... He had committed a crime, but then wanted to make amends. And in his mind, the way justice worked, you trust a teacher, an authority figure, the the wrong gets righted, you pay your penalty price, but ultimately you have reintegrated yourself into the justice system, indicated that you are aware that a crime was committed by you, that you are repentant, that this repentance will prevent you from doing the same thing again. You get a reduced sentence, and but it's it's you're playing along with the system. It's fair. This was Chris ramming up against a ridiculously unfair and corrupt system as the teacher then mysteriously uses the money to buy a brown skirt. And again, his performance is amazing as he's giving this speech, but the subtext that he then went on to someone who stood up for the little guy. That is what everything seems to be about what Chris is. He will defend the innocent, but he will also defend and contextualize the guilty and repentant. And the fact that he's judged by the entire town suggests he would seek out cases where people who didn't have any other kind of chance would need him. Mm. 
Yeah. One yeah. Gordy that, makes a point to say that he makes the best piece. Yeah. Uh, and so that would hint that as well. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That he, he would be interested in things that would result in reconciliations and things being, as you say, wrongs being righted. I just this jumps slightly to the end. So I apologize for that. But it did occur to me that the moment when Ace goes to grab Chris when he has the knife in his hand, when they're down at the body, mm-hmm. um, and he holds the knife up to his throat. Yeah. When Gordy says what's happened to Chris uh, when he got into the fight or when he tried to stop the fight, he was stabbed in the throat. And that kind of feels like Gordy stepping in. He bought Chris some extra time. Wow. I have literally written in my notes the knife that was held back mm-hmm. for 27 years. Yeah, absolutely. And wow. th- And the, the role that... Chris then was able to fill means that although his own life was lost, how many lives did he get to improve, to touch, to repair? No one even asked me if I took the milk money that time. I just got a three-day vacation. Did you take it? Yeah, I took it. You knew I took it. Teddy knew I took it. Everyone knew I took it. Even Vern knew it, I think. Maybe I was sorry and I tried to give it back. You tried to give it back? Maybe. Just maybe. And maybe I took it to old lady Simons and told her, and the money was all there. But I still got a three-day vacation because it never showed up. And maybe the next week, old lady Simons had this brand new sugar on when she came to school. Yeah, yeah, it was brown and had dots on it. Yeah. So let's just say that I stole the milk money, but old lady Simon stole it back from me. Just suppose that I told the story. Me, Chris Chambers, kid brother to eyeball Chambers. Do you think that anyone would have believed it? Oh. And do you think that that bitch would have dared tried something like that if it had been one of those douchebags from up on The View if they had taken the money? No way. Hell no. But with me? I'm sure she had her eye on that skirt for a long time. Anyway, she saw her chance and she took it. I was the stupid one for even trying to give it back. But anyway, the pie-eating contest. (laughs) (laughs) One more thing on that speech, if I may. If you would, please. The the part of the speech that actually really got me on this time is when Chris is expressing how he wishes he can just restart his life. Hmm. And as a kid, go somewhere where no one knows where you are. And that stood out to me because as a kid, that's impossible. You can't move to another town without having the financial requirements that goes into that. And having the place and having, you know, the logistics to do that. And as a kid, that's just such a fear that you have, even even just with bullies and school and friends and being embarrassed. And now the teachers, the people that are supposed to help you with school, can't even be trusted. Restarting your life is something that all kids can uh, want and feel. 
And just that expression, I've never seen an expression like that except in this film and except in, during that speech. And that also can go along with this beautiful poetic moment where he becomes a lawyer and he can help people restart their life, even if they are someone that I sort of saw him as going into defense of someone that might have messed up but wants to be wants to change later on, get that second chance. If they were incarcerated, help them getting back into the world and, and restarting and sort of coming back to society. I I sort of saw him doing that based on that line alone. There's a level of obligation uh, when you're a kid uh, that you can't move towns and you've got to stay with your parents you can't move schools you've got to go to the school that your parents send you to if you're if you have very receptive parents they might listen to you when you say i hate this place please move me to somewhere else or you have the reverse which is something that river phoenix experienced himself which is where your parents move around a lot and you've got no choice you go with them you're effectively a stick born up in a river. You're forced downstream and you have very little control over your life. And again, like I said, when I watched this film this time around, I really felt that level of trapped, that level of no control over your own course yeah. that these kids have. Which is often what results in teenagers when they start to be able to rebel a little bit, making very bad choices sometimes because this is like how much practice have they actually got at making choices and decisions for themselves yeah so yeah uh, the pie eating contest uh, this seemed to be <laughs> it's a fun bit and uh, Rob Reiner was like I really wish we had, we had left this out of the uh, film it's so broad and it's all about vomit and it's gross and everyone loves the pie eating story it's, it's a way of showing what Gordy's talents and abilities are. Mm. And, and the story he's telling is kind of not the point. The fact that his friends are hanging on his every word because of how he tells the story yeah. is the key element to it. And that's what underpins Chris's insight into Gordy having this talent that could take him far. And yet, because of his relationship with his father, he's trying to throw it away. He's trying to say it's not worth anything because that's what he get, he's made to feel at home. But it's a macrocosm of the entire uh, mo- movie and the thesis of the story in that uh, Davy Hogan, the, uh, the revenge getter in this uh, story, is mocked and derided by the entire crowd. There, there's a very... A neat series of moments wherein everyone in that tent proves themselves to be a colossal asshole. And so there is a catharsis which comes with the vomiting all over the place. Because apparently everyone in that tent ate that blueberry pie. Yeah, that's, that's what, exactly what I said. I said, look, they, got a, they made extras. So, so everyone got to eat some blueberry pie before they watched this pig no, out. No, what that is is a special effects person who says, look, if I have to make vomit, I am only making one batch, all right? Good God. And it has to be blue. I mean, yeah, I'm fine with that. I really don't need... I don't need a, a multi-hued... <laughs> series of oh the 4k really would have made the most of that wouldn't it yeah of, of like uh gastro this isn't a stephen king horror movie yeah gastrointestinal <laughs> fireworks effectively Indeed. this is uh then uh followed up with uh, them uh listening out for wolves and keeping uh, guard for each other um and uh, entrusting each other with this gun 
that being out in the wilderness is somehow better than being back in the restrictions you know that the, the town represents um but the deer gordy is sat on the railway track quietly in the morning uh, before everyone else gets up reading a comic and then a deer walks past him i definitely have read a bunch of different ideas from this and i know Rob Reiner has some interpretations, and to me, I, I love the theme of nature as healing, and I don't even necessarily think that's what this meant. I, I honestly think it was a bunch of different things, and depending on how you feel, what you can connect with, you can sort of say that. And I've read some some pieces about Rob Reiner saying that. To me, it came across the fact that he didn't tell his friends is he needed some peace on himself where you can get by with your friends. He knew, and in the end, you eventually drift apart from your friends. And this was just step one of his growth of finding something on his own, keeping it to himself, and then later sharing it with the world and sharing that this was not necessarily his discovery, but this was his moment. And this was his moment of growth, knowing that there is some good in the world as well. Nice. Yeah. That's actually better than what I had. I'm going to go with that as a, a great reading. <laughs> so they then, is the, the bit with the pond and the leeches in the novelette? I forget. Candidly, I read this novel novella like 12 years ago. All right. So that, that part went <laughs> over in my head. But I do know, I want to say it was, because I remember reading that uh, Stephen King had this experience mm-hmm. happen to him. He, his friend did a handstand mm-hmm. underwater. And when his legs came up, they were covered in leeches, and oh, so they all geez. got out. So my guess is, yes, this wasn't the novella. Was this the actual novella originally based on any individual event or any individual friends, or are they composites of people that uh, Steve knew? Uh, he'd, he's done a couple of books about the process of writing, um, and I can't remember which one this was in, but he's mentioned that when he was a kid, apparently he was out walking with a friend and he came back alone and they found out later that the kid had been hit by a train. He said he didn't remember seeing this at all, but his mom or his dad or somebody had a theory that he'd seen it happen and basically just blanked it. Internalised all the horror and then it just came pouring out in his books. Yeah. Yikes. Specifically terrible wow. things happening to kids who were completely unsuspecting. Mm. Hmm. This is around the point where Gordy says, I'm not going back. And uh, his, uh, this has become kind of a, a quest for him. They, they, they sing like a night without... Da, 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 da. What's that uh, theme tune from? I, for, I forget. I know it's something about Paladin. Um, a Man Called Paladin. But I don't yeah. know if that's a theme song or something. It's, it's a got show. a very know. kind of like uh, uh, Don Quixote feel to it. Like, you know, this quartet of little Don Quixotes all... Yeah sort of making their way across the country to, to effectively perform what ends up being a virtuous task. Mm, yeah, and there's, a, there's a slight sort of Civil War soldier element to it as well. It's actually the theme tune to a TV show called Have Gun Will Travel, which uh, follows the adventures of a man calling himself Paladin, taking his name from that of the foremost knights in Charlemagne's court. 
He is a gentleman investigator slash gunfighter who travels around the Old West working as a mercenary for people who hire him to solve their problems. Although Paladin charges steep fees to clients who can afford to hire him, typically $1,000 per job, he provides his services for free to poor people who need his help. Like many westerns, the television show is set in a nebulous time period after the Civil War. I've got a feeling this is what Bounty Law in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was based on. But also, you could see why the very nature of Paladin might appeal to these boys. Paladin, Paladin, where do you roam? Paladin, Paladin, far, far from home. Have gun, will travel, reach the card of a man. A knight without armor in a savage land. And obviously, uh, we, we've had it uh, drawing on this. Stranger Things drew a hell of a lot from this as well. Oh, 100%. The bikes. Well, not, not the bikes. That was it. But, uh, you know, the train tracks. They're following the train tracks with Eleven to get to yeah. the, the the lab and everything. That's just one example. The sense of their, their group being complete when all of them are together and then just one member being away makes them feel wounded. That's, um, mm-hmm. that's definitely, like, uh, ref- as... Like that's the basis of the melancholy of the story, as uh, Gordy reflects by the end. I do wonder what the hell Stranger Things is even going to be when they come back in their twenties. Um, <laughs> but yeah, then effectively they they get to the body, Ray Brower, and he's just a boy who's been killed, and a lot of stuff happens which is not necessarily spoken out loud, and you, you can mine so much from the silences and the uh, the just the the kids staring at this um this body but gordy has a huge amount of stuff to process regarding his brother i think the key element of it for me because obviously the he brings up the fact that when he was at denny's funeral he couldn't cry and he hasn't grieved for his brother. He hasn't really started that process of letting that go. And something that is almost stated outright is that the the reason that Gordy really wanted to push on when the others were maybe thinking that we should give up and go home at this point is that seeing this body is going to help him start to let go of Denny. Mm. But there's mm-hmm. a there's another element to this that I think is more hinted at which is the his his deeply held belief that his father wishes that he had died instead of Denny and this is why I think it's significant that Ray Brower is their age by seeing somebody who is his age and dead he gets even just for a moment to sit with that feeling of okay what if it was me what would happen then? How would how would people feel about that? And just kind of hold that idea in his head for a moment. Right. And that's when he's able. The what I I I don't know if I'm gonna pull a muscle with this reach, but that line, I didn't cry at my at my at my brother's funeral, I, I almost took as though his father seeing him being sensitive and having these feelings, he would have gotten scolded almost because it's Mm. sort of let on in the earlier scenes that he's trying to to be more creative and into writing 
he can't even share this this probably wonderful story that he wrote with his parents because they're not really interested in that. And I, I almost feel like that that dream sequence, if he was trying to get emotional, that his father would like scold him and, and tell him to be the sort of masculine figure of the 50s. And he's allowed to process it now because he wasn't given the chance at the funeral. Yeah. Again, that might be a reach. I don't know. No, no, no. I, I think I, that's, that, that's spot on. That and in sense. particular, because one of the things that expressing emotion provides for us uh, in a social sense is it's not just us outpouring how we feel because if that was the case we could do it sat in a room alone and it would have the same value but it it creates bonds because by by showing that you are feeling something emotional in front of other people you give them an opportunity to comfort you and that reinforces the bond between you and in Gordy's family, there is no sense of those bonds because those emotions and those vulnerabilities are not shown. That's why those bonds are not there. And I, I will bet you folding money that Chris was not at that funeral. But by letting that emotion out in front of Chris, who is capable of giving him that comfort that he needs, um, he, he's able to get something that if he'd cried at the funeral, he wouldn't have got. He wouldn't have had that feeling of I am sharing this pain and somebody is telling me that it's okay to feel it and, and reinforcing that connection between us. And it's it's interesting to me that the there's a parallel between the between Chris getting upset over the milk money situation and Gordy not really knowing how to comfort him. He kind of pats his arm, but he doesn't really know what to do. Because in that emotional sense, Gordy is still much younger than Chris because he's not been through as much. He hasn't had those experiences and had a chance to work them out for himself. Um, but when Gordy is upset at the end there, Chris knows exactly what to do. He just puts his arm around him and lets him cry. Mm. And that's mm. Chris has that sense of emotional maturity where Gordy has maybe got a bit more intellectual maturity. Um, the fact that he's the one who has the smarts to check the railway lines to see if they're vibrating. Mm-hmm. You know, there's quite a few things that that show that Gordy may be the smart one, but Chris is the one with the intel- with the uh, emotional intelligence of the group. I definitely internalised the uh, being unable to cry over one person until you deal with the death of another person, and use that in my writing. Folks who've read my books will know what I'm talking about with that one. Uh, there's another element to this which it didn't necessarily sink in so much as resonate with me on a very core level and that is that when ace and his gang turn up the uh these kids the uh castle rock branch of the losers um defend the body and say no go away not in a we want to claim this one but in a out of respect for the dead and out of uh, almost a, a ritualistic dignity afforded to uh, the corpse of this person that he's already acknowledged will never chew the end of the eraser on his pencil anymore. The, the, he's acknowledging that this, this used to be the shell around a person and now has been, as the, the guy in the grocery store says, in, in, in life we are among death. Most people understandably are terrified of death and are not used to encountering it or or feeling it that close and processing it takes a lot out of us but the proper handling of the dead 
allows us on some level to begin that process. Mm, yeah. There's there's also the fact that he is the same age as them yeah. or was the same age as them. And there's a, almost a sense of he's one of us. You can't have him. And there's something disturbing to me about the despoiling of a body uh, in particular. I read a, um, a really decent book from a, a really renowned author um, a couple of Christmases ago, and I, I felt like dying at the end because this book, without the central hero characters being directly appalled at the treatment itself, did horrible things to a dead body, and it just seems to get to me on an elemental level where it's like this feels capital W wrong to do that. And it was such a minor aspect of the book, but it felt like it stood out like the sorest of thumbs for me. So the fact that Gordy stands over this body and says, no ace, leave this guy alone, get the fuck out of here, and pulls the gun... Uh, originally, uh, Will Wheaton felt like, you know, shouting at, uh, at Ace and, and he was sort of talked down by Rob and, uh, and said, no, no, you just be really steady with yourself and just tell him in a matter of fact way, the gun does the shouting for you. Mm. Yeah. You have all the power in this situation and he knows it. Mm. And that's good to know that behind the scenes fact, because I, I also wrote down that Will Wheaton's line delivery in the scene is it's chilling. It is yeah. so good. Um, I, I absolutely love it. And something else about another difference here is originally Stephen King had written for Chris to be the one holding the gun. Wow. Um, you know, Reiner said, let's let's have Gordy do it. And when he explained why, he's like, this completes Gordy's journey as the POV character. And King yeah. was like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because no, sometimes does, you rush, Steve. Yeah, it, yes, you do. You're trying to get to the end too quickly. Um, but yeah, he's uh, what Gordy's doing at this point is effectively... He doesn't get the cap back from Ace, but he does get something much more important from this situation, which is that he internalises Denny. He steps up to be his own big brother at this point. Nice. Yeah. There's also the, the line he gives that I really love is when Ace says to Gordy, what are you going to do? You're going to shoot all of us? And Gordy says, no, no Ace, Ace, just you. Because he knows Great line. that... Those guys you have stood behind you, where I have my guys who are here with me and are forming a solid line and would not leave mm. me, your friends, if I shoot you, they scatter. They don't care. Mm. Yeah. And Ace knows that. And the look on Kiefer Sutherland's face at that point is priceless. It's... Uh, uh, Will Wheaton pointed out that the, uh, he found the TV edit of this hilarious because they removed the first part of Suck My Fat One, You Cheap Dime Store Hood. In the TV version, it's just You Cheap Dime Store Hood. And he marveled at the fact that Kiefer Sutherland is like, Oh my God, you got through all my layers with just those words! <laughs> Am I that transparent? But yeah, he, he disturbs Ace. And it, it's quite feasible that the moment they get back to town and the moment the gun is back in uh, uh, Chris's dad's uh, keeping, those bullies will jump on them and beat the shit out of them. Them, but effectively, they. It, it seems like if that actually happened, 
they didn't do enough damage to them to make it a noteworthy story part, and that the victory, the moral victory, and the the actual quest victory had already been won by that stage. So ultimately, you can kick the shit out of us all you want. They end up phoning in an, an anonymous tip to get uh, uh, Brower's body picked up, and nobody gets the credit. And it doesn't matter because they've already achieved what they set out to. Yeah. The important thing is that Ray gets to be brought home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they all completed their arcs. The story as told is sadly so much more powerful if it is just Chris who has died in the present. Vern and Teddy do go off and lead normal and, in the case of Teddy, troubled lives, but they just kind of muddle on and continue to be taller versions of who they were as kids, and Chris ends up being able to achieve what he believed he couldn't, what he was told he couldn't, despite the township, the, the civilization that had no use for Chris Chambers. Yeah, and, and just to kind of go back to the Rob Reiner casting for a second about basically casting these kids, the yeah. the prediction that Gordy laid out for – well, not the prediction, the summary of what happened to them is basically what happened to these four kids. Corey Feldman obviously dealt is dealing with the most troublesome present, and then you've got um, – Jerry O'Connell, who's married to Rebecca Romaine and has kids. And you've got Will Wheaton, who's a writer. And you've got River Phoenix, who, again, tragically was the most successful in that short term, mm. you know, had the strongest trajectory and then was cut. His life was cut short, far shorter than it should be. And, you know, kudos to Reiner there. And, and that scene where you get the fade out on Chris mm. when Richard Dreyfus is narrating about his passing, it's just haunting. Yeah. I'm never going to get out of this town now, my Gory. You can do anything you want, man. Yeah. Sure. I'll see ya. Not if I see you first. Chris did get out. He enrolled in the college courses with me, and although it was hard, he gutted it out like he always did. He went on to college and eventually became a lawyer. Last week, he entered a fast food restaurant. Just ahead of him, two men got into an argument. One of them pulled a knife. Chris, who had always made the best piece, tried to break it up. He was stabbed in the throat. He died almost instantly. It helps that the uh, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> it helps that the score uh, plays the the theme tune of uh, uh, um, Benny King's "Stand by Me." Mm-hmm. Keeping this original vintage song uh, was a huge deal. They were going to have Michael Jackson do a cover version in 1986. <laughs> this yeah, would have been around the bad era, and it would have uh, sealed it in the 80s. But instead, it's a period piece and it's timeless. And it has... I mean, it's, it's, it's not timeless. It's a period piece. Ergo, it has that particular time attached to it. But sticking with Benny King allows it to dwell in that moment, in that era. Uh, rather than right. throwing us into who was trendy in 1986. And, uh, yeah, the um, like we said, the original uh, uh, story had uh, Vern and Teddy both die in tragic uh, accidents. And this is effectively 
the lone survivor, uh, Gordy, looking back on his um, his childhood and just reflecting on that. But like I said, it, it just makes it so much more sharp that it was only the best of them who was taken away early. It's... Um, I suppose there's a uh, a melancholy acceptance of how unfair life actually is within the confines of this movie. The in the way Gordy internalizes that or at least processes it is very peaceful. It's it's only done through the few lines where I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It's I, I haven't seen him in ten years, but I'll miss him dearly. Uh, and I'll know I'll miss him forever. I know. I'll, yeah, I know. I'll, and it's it's just so peaceful the way he wasn't really able to process his brother's death, even though the brother was the one person that he could look to as as sort of a father like figure. Mm. The fact that he's able to peacefully I mean, obviously he's going to miss him and, and going to process that. But we get to see him process that still on screen. The best friend he had when he was a kid and in growing up past that, I think, is also kind of peaceful and uh, grief is very cinematic mm. and this movie is there's there's always that looming grief that happens and the fact that we get that in almost 10 seconds but i still feel that emotional impact is impressive i don't know how they do it <laughs> the the last lines are not spoken there on the computer i never had any friends later on like the ones i had when i was 12 years old jesus does anyone and i think that a lot of that is parasocial the uh, age is exactly right for you to have advanced beyond childhood to actually start thinking more complex things, depending on the kid. Fern isn't doing that. Um, but it also is a, it's pre being able to get yourself a part time job and post homework. So what you have is a bunch of kids starting to experience thinking about things in more depth while, you know, like is Goofy a dog or not? Um, and also this rush of hormones so they feel things much more sharply and passionately and for that brief window they want to be around each other so that they can get a bead on the world because it's so fucking confusing at that age and it continues to be but as you get older and you settle into your job and you settle into your routine and you settle into the smaller circle of friends and eventually just partner and sometimes you see friends or friends that you manage to keep for your entire life if you're very lucky you've bought into what society has to offer and where it's put you in a way that you don't yet at 12 so that would probably be why your friends then are different to the rest of your life. Mm. Sometimes it's framed this way in films, sometimes it's not. But coming of age is not a moment. You are not a child one day and then the next day you're an adult. It's a sequence of events that shift your perception, sometimes in quite small ways. But by the end of it, you look at the world in a completely different way to how you did when you would have called yourself a child. And 12 is around about the age that that shifting of perception really starts to kick in. Like you said, because all the hormones are making everything brighter, louder, more intense. And there's so much transition and movement going on in your life between, I would say, 12 and about maybe 16, 17, that those are the things that are going to completely and utterly 
um, revolutionise the way you see the world. Yeah. School of Movies continues thanks to you folks supporting us on Patreon. And the folks at the top tier get a special mention every week. So thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finn Barnicol, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. We had to slightly reshuffle this show because it coincided with the 50th episode of the old kids' movies. And we didn't want to make him change the episode number to 51 just for us, so you got Stand By Me early, and next week, War for the Planet of the Apes. And just before that, I'm going to be re-releasing Rise of the Planet of the Apes and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. So you can get the whole trilogy in one go. Any more on Stand By Me? Okay, then. I think we did. Oh, wait, did. Alex. Oh, yeah. I, I have one, one more question. Yeah, go for it. Did Lardas have to pay to get into the pie-eating contest, or did they just let him in? No, they just let him in. I love that because great, it great. feels like that's something that an author, you know, who, who is, is trying to kind of express. Sometimes people will ask you silly questions and you're like, did you pay attention to the rest of the book? And also the whole, like, Teddy saying the ending should be he goes home and kills his father. I'm like, Teddy... Please seek help. Jesus. Oh, wait, it's 1959 or 1960, depending on whether it's the book. There is no help. Fuck. So anyway. (laughs) Okay, um, this is uh, now a uh, good time for you uh, to to tell us about your show. So uh, what is Old Kids Movies? Uh, Yeah, it's it's been a blast. We started this um, last year as a quarantine project, and we've been growing ever since and loving it. Basically, we go back to our favorite and not-so-favorite 90s and early 2000s movies. Trevor and I are both on the cusp of millennial Gen Z, so uh, these were the movies that we grew up with as kids. And we go through and talk about what holds up, what doesn't. We go into some fun discussions around things like what would be the drinking game, what are the pure nostalgia plugs that we love, and then ultimately, does it hold up or not? And you can find us uh, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're on Twitter at uh, Old Kids Movies. We're on Instagram at The Old Kids Movies. Um, and it's, it's been a blast. Trevor, did I miss anything? Just we try and find the hidden gems of what is entertainment made for kids and what should be seen by the kids today, even if it was made long ago as just a commercial. And once again, if you're listening to this on the week of release, go check out Old Kids Movies, and we will be on there having launched just yesterday on the 50th episode, which should be easy to find at any point in the future as well, talking about Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Thank you so, so much, gentlemen. And uh, we will be back next week. Uh, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. Thank you.
Stand by, stand by, when it 